Can you put that picture of Titus up? We're going to begin our morning and our sermon portion of our corporate time uh, in a moment. We're going to begin it in prayer now. I want to introduce the Huck family. Some of y'all, most of y'all know the Hucks. They just had a new kid, little boy. Steve and Lori have grandkid number three. This is Titus, and he was born yesterday. Dubai time, something, I forget, but he was born yesterday. So he's a newborn baby, and this is a picture we've got. Let's pray for this family. Let's pray for their, they are on the mission field in Kazakhstan, and they're part of this people. They were sent by this people, and we are in fellowship and in partnership and in support of them. So let's begin in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you so much for Jake and Steph. Thank you so much for their journey and for Christ in them. Lord, we pray for their marriage. Lord, we pray that it is rich and blessed. And pray that uh, Jake is leading out in love. That he is loving Stephanie as Christ loved the church. And that he is gnawing, feasting, dining on the word regularly. And that he is undone. That he is disassembled. That he's growing downward. And that he's being reassembled and is growing upward in worship and wonder. So that in many ways Christ is ministering to that home through Jake. Lord, we thank you for the family. We thank you for little Titus, new addition. And we thank you for new life. We know that every breath comes from you. And we give you all the glory. We pray for his little body that as he develops that he's healthy. We pray more so for his little soul that he will long for Christ. And that when he hears the gospel that he will respond in faith. And that he'll be an instrument of glory. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for North Baptist Church. I pray for the church, the people. I pray for Kelly Reagan. I pray for his ministry to his wife and his family and to his ministry to that church, Lord. We pray that it is rich and blessed. I pray that he is being undone in his study time and that he is fueled by worship and wonder. And pray that that's gushing over onto his family first. And that secondly, it's gushing over onto a people. And that North Baptists will be grown into an extraordinary people because they are following you and enjoying you. Lord, I pray that you will guard us and guard North Baptists and guard every other Christ-adoring church in this community from ever having a spirit of competition. But that we can truly be on the same sheet of music with the same message, the same Christ, the same cross, the same empty tomb. And that adoration will fuel us corporately in this community. And that you'll be glorified in the way things are different here. Guard us from competition, Lord. We want the best for these churches for your glory. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you will just um, kind of move me out of the way. I'm, I confess to you in front of this people that I'm sort of nervous about uh, expectations of visitors and first-timers and last-timers. And everybody in between, just sort of nervous this morning. I just have, I have a high expectations for me, and I confess, Lord, I'm afraid I'm at the center of that. I pray that you will move me out of the way. And that you'll be enjoyed these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews. We're normally in the book of John, but there's a passage in John chapter 13 that led us on a little bit of a journey this summer. 
We called it the Summer of Love. This is the last official Sunday of that. Although it doesn't mean that we won't have future sermons on love. It's just kind of a tidy ending to um, a few Sundays that we've spent on love. And this, funny enough, this Hebrews passage that we studied last week and that we're going to continue on this week, it's not so much about love. It's more about being people, being the people of God. While it addresses love, and we'll go there briefly this morning, it's more about an identity. It's less about an activity and more about an identity as the people of God. Before I read the passage, I want to give you a little bit of context. This letter, this letter to the Hebrews was written to a Jewish Christian church. Many of you have heard of a Messianic Jewish church. These are Jews that have an identity, both an ethnic and in some ways even a religious identity as a Jew, but yet they are believing on Christ that he was the Messiah and is the Messiah. So imagine a little small 12 to 15 people maybe, Messianic Jewish church that's actually in the Roman Empire. And imagine in that context that you've got two strikes against you being in the Roman Empire. First of all, you're Jewish in a place where everybody else is Gentiles. All you need to be is the lone person among many people of another sort to be a target. So you're Jewish. Second of all, you're a Christian. So these guys have gotten a double whammy of persecution and suffering. But it seems... That while they've had the gospel for a period of time and had walked together as a church for some period of time, they were growing sluggish. The passage we looked at last week, we get to see our slug again this morning. The passage we looked at last week, where we're going to begin this morning, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12, they're bookends of sluggishness in this passage. It begins talking about being sluggish of hearing, and it ends with, don't be sluggish but be imitators. So that's what this passage is about. And these guys, this little church, people who had been Christians for a period of time, had gathered for a period of time, instead of building on the foundation of truth that had been sown into them, they'd grown sluggish with the truth. And how it showed up was in their unwillingness to speak the truth to others. They'd gotten sort of silent with sharing truth with those who didn't have it. Bottom line, if you want to summarize what their sluggishness looked like, they couldn't teach. Now, I hope, I hope that kind of alarms you. Because I, I w- if we took a poll, how many of you could teach truth to another person? That At least what I hear from people often is, man, I, <laughs> I can't do that. So I hope you see this has a connection with you this morning. The writer of the book of Hebrews takes these guys to some imagery, some really alarming imagery that would have been just in their minds already. He takes them to this imagery to quicken them and arrest them with what's at stake when we're sluggish and when we can't teach or when we're silent with the truth. Before we really climb into this, I want to do this. I want to encourage you to prepare yourself to think like a people. I hope as we engage this this baptism this morning, as you saw Lauren baptized into a people, and you heard to hopefully engage that explanation about a new humanity, that you're already thinking like that. But I want to take it into the sermon, thinking like a people. In fact, what's even better is think like a Jew. Think like a Jew where you, your people has wandered in a desert. Your people, your heritage is from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. And you know the story 
secondhand. That's part of who you are. If you're thinking like that as we climb into this, you're going to walk, walk away with something rich. We're going to begin the same place we began last week, but last week we did what I call low crawling. We did a lot of that in the Marine Corps, where when you're low crawling, you can see things on the ground because your face is right there next to it. So we're low crawling through the Word last week. This week we're going to kind of stroll through the first part of it, through the warning, but we're still going to engage it. And then we're going to get down on our hands and knees and low crawl through the pastoral encouragement. Okay, let's start in chapter 5, verse 11. This is the stern warning. About this, let me tell you what this is about. In the chapters previous, the one specifically right in front of this, he's been talking about Christ as high priest. He's been talking about Christ through the whole book up to date. But especially in the previous verses, he's been talking about Christ as high priest. So when he says about this, he's saying about Christ as high priest. Or about Christ in general. We have much to say. But it's hard to explain. It's not hard to explain because it's really complicated. It's hard to explain because they've grown dull of hearing. Just like some people are sleepy this morning and I don't know why they're even here. Just like some here getting their church on, maybe they were getting their church on. They've grown dull of hearing. Not, and they can't get this, not because it's especially complicated, but because they're dull of hearing. They've got other things on their minds. Ladies, cars, cool jobs. Cool houses, cool pools. They've grown dull of hearing. Probably not because of any of those things. They're probably just trying to preserve their own lives. And they've grown dull of hearing. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. By this time suggests that they've been a Christian for a period of time. And they ought to be teaching others because they've been a Christian for a period of time. But they're not. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. We've got to go back to the basics yet again and again and again because you haven't taken those basics and processed them and you're not teaching others with those basics. So we find a new, fancier way to present the same old truths. It says you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In essence, what these guys are guilty of, what he's charging them with, he's writing to a church that ought to be doing grown-up things. Remember last week we had the visual of the grown-up things where I'm sitting with my legs crossed with a cup of coffee talking because that's what grown-ups do through the eyes of a kid. That's all they do. They ought to be engaging grown-up things, which is teaching. But instead they're still playing with their Legos and their Cindy dolls and they're drinking from their sippy cups. Still drinking milk. They ought to be teaching though. And he's gotten all up in their face over it. You guys ought to be teaching. Notice, too, that he's using this as the mark of maturity. You say you're a mature Christian. Can you teach someone else? In fact, think of the example that he's using, teaching on Christ as high priest. You're a mature Christian? You've been a Christian for years, decades maybe? Can you teach someone else on Christ as high priest? That's the marker that he's using for maturity. He's saying that you guys haven't done that. You ought to be teaching 
but you can't do it because you're still drinking from your sippy cup. And this was convicting for me. Because if I did a poll with each one of you, I wonder how many of you could teach on Christ as high priest. And I'm not talking about teaching like up here. I'm talking about teaching maybe your six-year-old. How many of you could do that? This was convicting for me. As I'm sitting back, I'm thinking of five years of ministry, Crosspoint being around for five years, I'm thinking that if we sit and dine together week by week for five years and we've produced no teaching daddies and no teaching mamas, no teaching young people and no teaching youth, then what are we doing? We're a bunch of terminal Christians. That'd make me want to quit if that were the case. Because it means that what I'm doing each Sunday when we gather is it's, it's landing on your ears and it's stopping at your heart and it's never migrating to your mouth hole. If that were the case, man, I'm done. I'll go sell Kenny shoes. I'm dating myself. That's old, old-timey <laughs> shoe. I don't, converse. Because if that's all we've been doing for five years, dude, what are we doing? This passage has gotten all up in our face, too, 2,000 years later. And I hope it's making you ask the question, can you teach your kids? Can you teach your brother? Can you teach your family members? Can you teach your, your, your workmates? Can you teach your neighbors on deep, rich truths? If you can't, then you're sluggish. Shame on contemporary Christianity for being so terminal, for getting our church on week by week, and it ending at the closing prayer and never migrating to the mouth. Shame on contemporary Christianity. By this time, we ought to be teaching. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since I've gotten all up in your face, the Hebrews writer, since you're sitting there with your sippy cup, and I've called you out on it as you're making that little weird air noise through your sippy cup, <laughs> and you pull it away from your mouth and realize that I'm calling you a baby, says, since I've done that, and you ought to be teaching, let us leave, and I'm going to interject the word standing. I'll come back to that and explain that. Let us leave standing the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. This is kind of like his, I'm convinced, this is like his sermon series to the Hebrews church. Listen to to this weird sampling, because it's kind of a weird complement of things. Let us leave those things, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. Basically what he's saying is let's leave those things standing. Let's not leave them as if they're forgotten like a dirty, dark, damp foundation. Let's not leave those things like repentance from dead works and faith in Jesus Christ as foundational that, oh yeah, that's assumed. Let's leave them standing where we can visualize them, where we can see them day by day, week by week. But let's not go deconstruct them again and have to build them again. For us as a people, if we were to list the things that we can leave standing, we can leave substitutionary atonement standing. We can leave sacrifice standing. In fact, we can just build on it. We don't need to disassemble it. We can leave propitiation standing. We can leave God's sovereignty standing. There's not a renegade molecule in the universe. That God is sovereign in all things. We can leave those things standing. We can leave shepherding standing. That daddies and functional shepherds, like single moms, are the primary instructors of children. Not the children's ministry. 
We can leave those things standing because we've established those. We can leave the primacy of the Word of God standing. We're not about the next program or scheme. We're about gnawing, feasting, preaching, teaching, engaging, seeking to obey this Word together. We can leave the primacy of the Word standing as this is what builds a people. Those are things we can leave standing. And that's where He's taken us in the last five years. And what He's saying there essentially is let's move on teaching those standing truths Enjoying those standing truths while dining on more to equip us to teach others. The real tell would be if you've been here for five years and somebody came and visited Crosspoint and they caught you afterward and said, hey man, what's substitutionary atonement? Where you can say, oh, <laughs> you got your Bible in your hand? I've got mine. Let's look in it together. Where you wouldn't say, well, where's that Ben McGraw? He could help you. Can you teach it? That's the tale of maturity. Convicting? Chapter 6, verse 4. It says, For it is impossible. Here the imagery is going to become very, very, very Jewish. This is the imagery last week that I think most people said, Oh my goodness, I'm getting that now, and I understand what this is about. It says, For it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who've once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the son of god to their own harm and holding him up to contempt man christians over the ages have gotten bogged down on this passage if some of y'all been christians for a number of years you read that passage before i bet you got bogged down on it lots of discussion lots of debate over what that passage means I hope what you connected with last week is that this is speaking about a people that are traveling through the wilderness together on the way to the promised land. This is speaking to a bunch of Jews that think wilderness, that think God's redemptive plan among the nation of Israel. We don't think that way. So we're reading Hebrews going, what does he mean? Can you lose your salvation? Is that what he's saying? Well, we got to look at it think like a Jew. And a Jew says, oh, dude, he's speaking about the wilderness experience. When he's talking about the enlightenment, he's talking about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that lighted there and lit their way as they moved through the wilderness. Light, lighted, lit. I always get that messed up. (laughs) When he's thinking about that heavenly gift that they tasted, what's a Jew going to think? Oh, man. How about some manna? How about some quail? When he's thinking about the interaction of the Holy Spirit with this people that led them through this wilderness and cared for them in this wilderness experience. They're going to connect the dots and think like this people. I hope you connected last week like what Lauren connected last week, that we're a people on a journey, not a bunch of individuals getting our church on. We're a people. That's who we are. And we're moving together through the wilderness of a fallen world to the promised land. I hope you appreciate. In five years of ministry here at Crosspoint, where Crosspoint's been a people, I think that may be one of the most significant truths that we've gathered as a people. That God has shown us. That we are a people. That we don't do church, that we are the church. We don't go to church, we are the church. Don't say, don't call my... Don't call our people a building by saying, let's go to church. Man, it'd 
Do you guys think I'm just doing semantics there? That's a big deal. When you say I'm going to church, what you're doing is you're containing the people of God to a location, geography, and you're containing them in time, Sunday morning. Don't contain the robust, living, out loud, awesome, salty, bright, aromatic people of God to space and time. We are a people. That's where this passage took us. It makes all the difference in the world. It takes these gatherings as not just another event on a busy schedule. Because if it's just another event on a busy schedule among work and among recreation and among soccer and among bowling and among horse riding and just insert X, then yeah, man, it's optional. <laughs> i got a lot of stuff to do. I can't tackle that too. It takes that and it totally transforms it. and says church is not an activity, it's who you are. So it takes these gatherings and they're no longer optional as in, yeah, I may sleep in, I may rest in, I may do whatever. It makes them critical and essential because they are a time of direction and leadership from the living God to a people. It's a time when the preached word comes out like the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. It's a time when the people of God gather and we sup together and we take the Lord's Supper together and we take fellowship with each other where we are taking in the manna together as the people of God. Where we are fellowshipping with each other and we're fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit when we gather, that's connecting us to this people who are moving across the wilderness. It takes what I share each week from Ben's little optional talky talk to something essential for life. <laughs> And it's not Ben talking, it's God's message for this people. So whether it's Ben, or whether it's Steve, or whether it's Scott, or whether it's the other Steve, or whether it's Brad, if we're standing and delivering a word that we've poured over, that we've sought God's face on, then you're seeing it not as Steve's message, or Ben's message, or Scott's message, but your message from the living God. That changes everything. Move on to verse 7. He changes metaphors with the same warning, but it's a lot briefer. And then we'll climb into where we're really going to low crawl. Because we've just been strolling. If you're alarmed that we've got a low crawl yet, that's okay. I'll take you there. And if you're not sluggish, you'll engage it too. Verse 7. For land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it, here teaching, preaching, fellowship, manna, pillar of cloud, pillar of smoke, or a pillar of fire, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears, if that same ground bears thorns and thistles, it gets all that rain, the teaching and preaching of the word, and all these things is nourishment, yet it's worthless and near, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. See, here's the reality. Some of you will take in the nourishment for years at a time, and maybe some of the youth who are poised and crouched and ready to bail on community the minute you reach of age, you reigned on for 18 years, but you're gone. That's what he's talking about right here. He's talking about apostasy has fallen away from community. So someone that says, man, <laughs> I think I'll go it alone. I don't need community. I, I'm a maverick. I, I'm a renegade. I'm a cowboy on a steel horse I ride. <laughs> I don't need community anymore. Given this picture in Hebrews, if you think you're cool, but you're doing those things, I've got news for you. You're not cool. 
According to this passage of stepping away from the people of God, when you're moving across the wilderness, when you leave the community that has the, has the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that's moving across the wilderness, when you bail on manna, no thanks, I'll go it alone. I'm a renegade, I'm a maverick, I'm a cowboy, on a steel horse I ride. What you are is you are lying food. That's why it's impossible to restore you again to repentance, because you've been eaten. Are your Jebusite, Hittite, Perizzite target, target practice. That's what you are when you step away from community. You're toast. And the image he uses here, you're a thorny, weedy field with God standing with a lit match, holding it right over you. That's what you are if you're sluggish. And you've fallen away from that rain. And you say, I'm, I'm going to go it alone. It started with non-teaching sluggishness, and if it continues, it'll end in death. Now, now the tone turns. We had to re-engage that. That's all we did last week. So for those of y'all that were here, you're looking forward to this next part. For those of you who weren't here, you're like, man, I'm glad I wasn't. You need to go back and listen to it. (laughs) I assure you, you need to go back and listen to it. This is a warning that I believe every believer needs. Every believer's got to think like a Jew and climb into this warning and then engage it and then all swallow hard. I don't want to be lion food. But then we move on to the pastoral encouragement from stern warning to hopeful encouragement. And here we're going to see some things that are characteristic to this people. Four things. Now, I want you to engage these four things because now you can look at these four things instead of just something to do as an activity. You can look at them as characteristic of an identity of who the people of God are. Okay, let's start in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, though we've warned you, though we've gotten all up in your face, though if you're a Jew, you swallow hard because you realize the connection that he's making, that you're going to be lying food, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is the hopeful heart, pastoral heart of this writer. He says, we feel sure that the frightening imagery of being lying food, that sluggishness leading to actually being eaten by a foreign people or a lion or the world, that it will do its job of arresting you. We're sure that you'll pick up the pace and re-engage the people of God as we move toward the promised land together. Look at verse 10. It says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. If you like to underline your Bible, underline work or circle it. And the love, underline or circle love, that you showed for His sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Now, I want to pick apart a couple things there. First of all, work. We have this worldly mindset that if God is in something, and it's really, I don't know where this comes from, but if God is in something, then we're just kind of caught up in it. And we don't have, there's no effort involved. It's kind of like a wave that we ride. That's the way we think about love, where we fall into something and we fall out of it. It's like we fell out of the wave. We caught the crest and it's just carrying us along. But what he's saying here is what's characteristic of the people of God is work, first of all. Work. 
See, it takes effort to engage and move together through the wilderness. As you're taking on this story that we've been in, that we've climbed into, where this people is moving across the desert, you can, exper- you can imagine what it must have been like to carry all the gear, to carry all the tents, to carry all the... They didn't need to carry their food. God was providing it. But to carry everything else, all that gold that the Egyptians gave them, man, that was some work involved. And it's work to move together through the wilderness. And it takes effort and it's work to have a young couple in your, uh, in your home for dinner to speak truth into their lives. That takes work. It takes effort to follow through on child care commitments. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Amen. Samantha's going to, if she's in here, she's going to stand and cheer. It takes effort to follow through on child care commitments. When you don't feel good, uh, uh, different if you're sick, like a fever or bleeding. <laughs> or you've lost a limb. Okay, give you that. But man, I, but if you have a headache and you're just sure they're going to be fussy, or you're tired, it takes work to say, man, I've committed to this people. That's my job on this journey for this morning is to engage these children with the truth. It takes work deacons to respond to a corporate need when you're asked not when it's convenient deacons when you're asked it takes work it's it's work to engage the word week by week i can promise you that people have a perception of pastors they just kind of sit around with their their slippers on eating ho-hos and bonbons and talking do a little talky talk every now and again you know somebody got a problem let me give you a little talky talk man hours i'm talking hours hours in the word week by week it takes work to engage this word it takes work to listen i understand that when your flesh is saying i'm hungry for melina's it takes work to listen when you stayed up working late the night before it's work It takes effort to engage each other in a meaningful way. It takes effort to know and to be known. But work is characteristic of the people of God. It's not something that we do. It's just who we are. If it's something that you do, then that can be presented in a very legalistic way. Do these things so that you will be the people of God. (laughs) But I'm going to flip it around. You do them because you're the people of God. That's the difference altogether. Second thing is love. See, I told you we were going to talk about love today. We'll finish out the love series with a few love notes. Love is characteristic of the people of God that are on this journey. We're the kind of people who, based on Christ's new commandment that He gave us, that took us, that led us on this journey, to love one another just as He loved us, that we are going to do so. And that we're going to do the kind of love that He's talking about. Not the caught up on the wave love. Hey man, it's just carrying me along. But the decision sort of love. That says, I'm going to love the unlovable. And I'm going to love people not based on their lovability. I'm going to love them because it's been commanded to me. That's the sort of love that's characteristic of community. That's just who we are. It's not an activity. It's an identity. And then next, there's work and love. The fact that you see work and love together is important because they go together. Because where the people of God are, you're going to find them both. Because they fuel each other. What you're going to find is you're going to find a loving work. 
and a working love. I love the fact that they're presented together. They go together. You say you love each other. You say you love your church. You say you love the people of God. You say you love what God loves. Show me some work. That's what James said. You'll find loving work and working love because that's just who we are. Working love and loving work must be shown, this is the key, for his sake. That's the key to the whole thing. Because if you love somebody for their sake, i got a few things for you to consider. If you love someone for the sake of the loved, I will promise you that it is an emotional roller coaster. Because the loved won't always respond the way you'd like. In fact, they may, they may betray you. They may bite you. So if you love want someone based on uh, what you think they need or what they deserve, and you're doing it for their sake, I promise you this, you will be disappointed. The second possibility is that you're loving for your own sake. And I will promise you this, that it's selfish at heart, and that will come back to bite you as well. Because you're going to expect a lot, and you will not get it. I've learned that in five years. If you're loving people for your own sake, you'll think you deserve a certain response from people for your love, and you'll be at the center of the outcome. And if they appreciate you, you feel good. So you keep on loving because you're doing it for your own sake. But if they don't appreciate it, you feel bad. And since you're doing it for your own sake, you say, I don't need this. I'm out of here. Doing it for his sake changes everything. Because if you're doing it for his sake, your love will be resilient. Your love will be consistent. Your love will be persistent. Your love will take on totally different character. Your love won't be volatile. Your love won't be fragile. Because his love toward us was not so. Your love, in fact, will be like his love toward us. It will be relentless. And it will not be based on the lovability of the love. Working and loving for his sake is the key. Two more things in the last two verses. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, there's the other book in, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. First of all, earnestness. I want to understand that word. The New American Standard puts, uh, I think, calls it diligence. That what's characteristic of the people of God is that they're working, that they're loving, that there's loving work, and there's working love, and that there's also earnestness. What I found in the original language is that word in the original language is the word spude. It's where we get the word speed. So what he's saying is, my, I'm, I'm desperately desiring that each one of you show the same speed as you journey. It's more imagery having to do with the people of God moving across the desert. Move at the same pace. Show the same diligence. Show the same effort. A few weeks ago, we were preaching on this contrast between Peter and Judas, and I saw people's views of assurance, old views of assurance, just being disassembled. You want a biblical view of assurance? Build it right here. Look around you. Are you moving at pace with the people of God? You want assurance? That's where assurance comes from. You're on the journey. You're moving through the wilderness on the way to the promised land with the people of God. you got the column of fire, the column of smoke. You're eating manna. You want some assurance? There it is. 
Look around you. Are you on the journey? People that are not engaging the people of God, they want assurance from me. Man, I'm sorry. <laughs> First of all, I can't give assurance to you at all. But if you want some confidence that you're on the journey, yet you're not moving with the people of God, man, you be the judge. Last thing is that you are imitating those who are journeying well. Imitating those who are journeying well. There's work. It's characteristic of the people of God. There's love. There's loving work. There's working love. There's earnestness. We're moving at the same speed, the same pace. You look around and you're surrounded by a people on a journey. And the last thing is that we are imitating those who are journeying well. I realize as I present the idea of imitation that we think about something that's disingenuine or inauthentic. In a lot of cases, it may be like imitation sandwich meat, spam or something. You're thinking of something that's not real. What is that? Imitation naugahyde, your leather. You know, what is that? It's not real. What I'm talking about is imitating like a child, like a boy imitates his father. That's the sort of imitation that we're talking about right here. I remember as a kid watching my dad shave. And now I look down, and little Daniel says, can I put some shaving cream on my face? And he gets a toothbrush or some other tooth instrument and wipes it off. Our children are going to learn where to even hold the steering wheel from watching us. They will learn everything from us. Men, your boys will learn, should they have a Bible? By looking at you. Adults, your kids will look to you to know, do I need to gather with the people of God, or is that optional? You might have some other stuff going on that might be more important. Tired. Busy. They'll learn it from you. I'll tell you something else they'll learn from you. If you can't be led, don't be surprised when your children don't follow you. Our kids imitate. That's the way they learn. And that's the sort of imitate. That's, the, that's what's charged right here. Imitate those who are doing it well. Imitate those who are on the journey. Imitate those who are working well. Imitate those who are loving well. Imitate those who have loving work and working love. Imitate those who are earnest and diligent and in step. Because when you imitate those, when you imitate people, you're going to end up where they imitate or when, where they land. And you're going to learn how to do it on the way. What's characteristic of the people of God as we move through the wilderness to the promised land is that we have loving work, working love, we're moving at the same speed, and we imitate. Those are the things that belong to salvation. Let me pray. Lord, I pray in these last five years that you are truly building a people and that this people will not be characterized as sluggish. I pray that you're raising up a people that are teachers. I pray that youth are seeing their responsibility in, in their not only teachability, but their ability to teach. I pray for parents, especially those fathers and functional shepherds, single moms, to see some ownership in being able to teach. Lord, I pray that you will guard us from sluggishness, but that we will be characterized how these people are characterized. I pray that you'll find us on the journey and that by grace and mercy we'll land in the promised land. Thank you for this sweet Jewish picture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.